So welcome again to the podcast. And today I'm going to talk about something that may be more suited to a visual format, but a lot of the time, as you notice, I re- I sort of redo my podcast in video format uh, at a later time, and it's because the podcast is more of a full idea capture um, format, and and really that's that's if you, if you know me very well, that's how I sort of um, I can figure something out by getting all the details out. And a lot of the time, a podcast episode, which could be 10, 20, 30 minutes long, is a better format for that. So I hope you can get something out of this of value anyway. So the subject I'm going to talk about is vintage lenses. And now you can see why this might be more suited to a visual format. But I'm going to talk about a new rule I have for myself that... I've been developing this over time, no pun intended, of course, right? But I've been developing this concept from the standpoint of I've been creating these the library of lens sensor LUTs specific to a lens and sensor combination. And the question I'm having to answer for myself is how far back do I go and what lenses do I cover? So from a from a purely business standpoint, um, I would never cover any lens that was just a personal interest, was just something that I I liked myself. But from yeah, from that standpoint, from a personal standpoint, I have uh, done a lot of testing on certain lenses that perhaps a lot of people don't have, but I find them particularly either useful or Maybe it's just a vintage lens that I had sitting around, and I thought, well, why not test that as well? But I'm going to change this policy because I want to make uh, progress faster. I want to gain some momentum, and I want my listeners and my viewers on YouTube to get value by me covering the lenses that they have. So Let's just state that as the short version. That's now my goal to shift from just lenses that I consider the most valuable to trying to focus on lenses that other people have. Now, I will have to give you an exception here because, and this is something that you may or may not uh, agree with yet or believe in yet, but maybe you can try it out because it's a very inexpensive tip. And that is, I believe that the 70 to 300 um focal length and and style of lens especially those from the 90s the you know the early autofocus era those are super useful and i haven't heard a lot of people talking about those i know there's newer there are newer versions of those but i tell you even while the 70 to 300 has a variable aperture um in this vintage of lens it's typically something between a 4 to 5.6 usually it is a 4 to 5.6 sometimes it's you know, 4.5 to 5.6, something like that. But even though it's not a constant aperture, I find this lens, especially the versions that have a macro feature, even though the macro feature is only uh, activated in usually the last 100 millimeters, that macro feature is very valuable outdoors. I won't say a lot more now. There's a video I do have on YouTube about my top three budget lenses. And this is one of those, the 70 to 300. 
So with that one exception of me really liking the 70 to 300 and the resultant action on my part being that I'm going to keep testing every 70 to 300 I find that is affordable and commonly available, I need to move into the realm of testing lenses that other people consider to be the most valuable. Now, still with the caveat that the budget is a requirement because that is my space. That is, I'm not going outside of this space. Um, Let's just go into a side note here. And this is something that I want to make very clear about me and my goals for my business, for my channel and everything. I am not going to go outside of being a budget filmmaker. And this is something that I feel is a, it's like a loyalty to an audience. The goal for my business is to create solutions for those on a low budget for filmmaking. So a low budget means I'm not going to keep growing and buying the next most expensive and the next most expensive and the next most expensive as I become able to afford it. No, I'm going to stay in the budget realm. Now, I don't like commenting as in a negative sense about other YouTubers, others' approaches and others' plans and things like that because I have so much appreciation for all of these YouTubers who have been doing this. But what I've been noticing recently is that certain, and, 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 and I feel kind of like this is like shooting myself on the foot if you think about this in terms of competition. But because I like to be a team player and I don't really like competition anyway, I'm going to put this out there. Maybe valuable advice for from a business standpoint. Hopefully it will help some some others. But what I've noticed is that certain YouTubers have created a channel and they focused on budget filmmaking for a certain period of time. And then... As they become more successful, as their audience grows, and as they begin um, perhaps getting offers from companies to, you know, here, test this equipment out or do this or that, they move out of the budget filmmaking niche. And the problem with that, in my opinion, is that they're no longer serving that same audience. So... What they're doing as they grow themselves, if they move out of speaking to the budget crowd and they start getting, I don't don't want to go into specific uh, camera models or anything like that, but let's say they start going into more high-priced gear. Let's say they move from sub $1,000 camera bodies to, you know, stuff three, four, five thousand dollars $5,000, maybe even just above $1,000 is the threshold. So, um, and my personal threshold right now, I'm trying to maintain is $600 or less for a camera body. So if you're if you're totally uninterested in this um, concept, then maybe you're not the right fit for my audience. My audience is is $600 or less. My my goal is to help those of us who are in that spot. And then when I go to the point where I have more uh, resources. This is it. I don't want to come. I don't want to make the same mistake I'm talking about that I think other YouTubers have made. I don't want to take my audience at that point and split it in two. So now you're speaking to both the high end and the middle or the low. I I don't want to do that. I, I I feel like that's a mistake. 
I, I don't want to give any examples. I don't want to say anything negative because I've, like I say, I have so much appreciation for these channels that, that have helped me personally grow and learn. And so when I see that happen, you know, you can start see uh, in the comments, you can see people asking questions like, remember, it's not always going to be in the comments. It's Sometimes it's going to be somebody doesn't leave a comment and they just feel a little bit saddened that you were their champion of budget equipment and now you're moving on to something else that they can't afford and now you just can't relate. I mean, it's kind of like um, if you had some buddies in high school that you all had junker cars and, you know, you just you just were like, yeah, we've all got cars that aren't worth that much money, but hey, we're all in this together, right? And then let's say one of you somehow strikes it rich and you go and you buy this really expensive car. And then you come back to your friends and maybe you're showing off a little bit, you know, young and cocky. This is how we, you know, we act when we, we lack experience. But we don't realize that it sort of can create a little bit of either jealousy or just a separation of concepts or just a, just like, okay, you know, Jimmy Joe, who who is one of us, I don't think he's one of us anymore. He's He's got an expensive car and... And, you know, it, it really only the separation would really only happen if Jimmy Joe just stops hanging out with that group of people, right? Maybe he, he's fine. He's got an expensive camera. And going back to the camera analogy here, and the rest of his buddies don't, but he still remembers those days. And so he talks about it from time to time. But it's a certain point, if he's not still living in that scenario, I think there's going to be some, uh, just a, whether it's just a little bit or a lot, there's going to be a, a just a lack of trust that's going to build because the other people are going to look at him driving in his fancy car and they're going to say, I just don't think he can relate to us anymore. You know, and you're trying to save money on, on your meal. So you're, you know, using the fast food apps and you're getting discounts and everything. And they're just like, I don't use an app anymore. I don't really need to, you know, I just buy whatever I want. It's just like, okay, I, I know you're the same person, but they just don't feel like we can relate to each other anymore. I, th- I think this is happening in certain areas of YouTube. It's, it's when one person gets so successful, they start, you know, not being able to, I mean, they could, they still remember where they came from, but I feel like it would be a good business plan. And so this is my goal here to not outgrow your audience. Now, You say, well, but isn't your audience going to outgrow you? Well, yes, but that's a positive thing, right? And instead of you being a moving target where one day you're talking budget and the other day you've got a $5,000 camera that you're using, why not let them outgrow you, have them move on to a different YouTube channel that now covers, you know, just the high end or, or whatever, and don't worry, you'll have more people coming up, finding your channel, because you're always focused on budget. So you can you can see a lot of reasons why the YouTube algorithm would, would love you for doing this, right? It would be it would be something that you're so consistent that the name budget is synonymous with your channel, right? It's something that you don't have to worry that if you upload a video about an expensive camera, 
that half of your audience is going to be commenting, oh, I can't afford that. It looks nice, but I can't afford that. I mean, I've read these types of comments. <laughs> I've seen these in multiple multiple scenarios. And it's hard to it's it's hard to read when I do that. So I'll just try to wrap it up. But it's just such a I didn't mean to put this sidetracked um thought in here, but it was such a big thing in my mind recently that I've decided to stay in the budget space. Stay focused on helping budget filmmakers. And my definition of budget is no more than $600 for a camera body and no more than $300 for a lens. Now, most of the lenses that I buy and use are around $100. If you know my um, basic, what I call kit plans, I've got three levels. The minimal kit, the basic kit, and the advanced kit. And in the minimal kit, the cost is the lowest and the complexity is the lowest. So visually, I, I wish I could show this here, but it's basically just a camera with a GoPro on top on the hot shoe. And you might think, oh, that's kind of dumb. You know, it's, it's easy. It's too easy. Well, that's what it's supposed to be for the minimal kit. That's the, like the, the lowest entry level. And I say even go back as old as a GoPro Hero 4 Silver if you need to. It's a little harder to hold steady. But, and if you need stabilization, go up to the seven or newer. But that's my recommendation for the entry level. And then the next level I have, I call it the basic kit. That's when I have two cameras. They're both interchangeable lens cameras. And I start going into recommendations for lenses and other other uh, pieces of kit. So that is a progression. And then the advanced kit, the third level, that's when you're pushing the envelope on lenses that are up to 300. And I'm going to just now switch to talking about the main topic of, of this podcast, which was what lenses am I going to test going forward? That $300 max was my goal so that I can stay within this budget sphere for those who um, can't afford more than that. And the question I have, and I might make... Uh, a YouTube video about this and ask for feedback as well. But the question I have is, with the popularity of lenses such as the Sigma 18-35, to I just don't see how I can avoid trying to get that lens. But this is really wonderful in a crazy way. I'm struggling to be able to afford that lens, and I feel like I can relate to all of the people in my shoes because everyone talks about that lens as being the great, you know, one of the greatest lenses to buy. However... Who has the $600 at any one time to do that without saving up for a few months, right? I'm, I know I'm, I'm not trying to encourage um, lack of saving uh, funds, but I'm just saying I want to be in the shoes of those who I'm talking to. And so that lens is going to be an exception. Now let me just come around back and say, what are the lenses that I'm going to be focusing on testing? It's going to be budget. And I'm sorry to disappoint you. For for now, it's going to be budget. You say, well, what if you grow beyond it? You're going to have an audience that's split, just like you were talking about. I'm going to start with the lenses that most of us can afford and most of us have. Will I grow into going beyond that? I guess this is really still a question. I wanted to say, I mean, I almost started this recording saying, okay. I mean, I did, I did start this recording saying, okay, I got to move away from what I want and start focusing on what people have. And I guess you can reconcile these two concepts because 
when I say what I want, maybe I want the more expensive lens, but I can't have it if I can't afford it right now. I'm walking (laughs) on a path that is a little bit tricky. It's a little bit tricky to explain. It was kind of, I'm glad I spent the time explaining why I want to stay in the budget space, even if I can afford something beyond that at some point. I think that was really worth it, even though it sounds, maybe it sounded off topic. But this is really the concept I want to come back to, I guess, is I want to be known as a budget filmmaker. And it's kind of strange because you think, well, don't you want to become like a, you know, a professional filmmaker? Don't you want to become somebody who can make lots of money at it? You know, so far on this list, those two things, yes, those are still things that I believe I can do as a budget filmmaker. Now, if you have disbelief at this point, I know you might be one of those, you get what you pay for uh, <laughs> type of, and I think I've covered how I don't disagree, how I don't agree with that concept in the past. You know, my short version is: you get what you get, you pay what you pay. So if you get a good deal on a good product, it doesn't make it not a good product. It is what it is, as they say. Just because you didn't pay a lot for it doesn't mean it's not good quality. Now, 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 just just take into consideration that I understand the background of pricing of um, the structure of companies when they put together a product launch. They're trying to get enough money to cover their expenses while putting it in a in a place in the market that it is reasonable. So I don't think that budget, um, you know, I don't think that some of the great opportunities in the budget realm are done on purpose. I think a lot of these things are accidents. Like just let's talk about the whole uh, idea that micro four thirds mount can take almost any lens ever created. Nobody planned that. You know that was a Call it a happy accident. Call it whatever you, you can. Uh, but it was it was a fun, uh, fun accident. It was a a positive thing. It was something that sort of snuck up on people. It was. I just remember when the the uh, Nikon mount changed. I'm sorry, not the Nikon mount. The Canon mount changed, and then um, you know Nikon actually changed their lens from being a uh, motor. You know. Uh, a drive where the it would spin the lens, you know, it'd spin that little thing, and the lens would turn based on the a drive motor to something like Canon, where they were doing sort of an electronic contacts motor, where it's you know driven that way. I remember when that changed. I remember, yeah, even back when Canon changed, and there was a period of time where these lenses were completely obsolete in people's minds. But then comes Micro Four Thirds. I I mean, it was there. But then somebody started thinking, let's make an adapter to take these lenses and fit them on a micro four thirds, right? It's just, wow, what a neat thing. I started that way. I started with the Panasonic a micro four thirds camera and an adapted Olympus OM 51.8. Oh, just a great lens, still a great lens. And so these are some of the budget recommendations that I have. However, there are changes that are occurring, and those changes are mostly in the area right now of autofocus. And the emphasis on autofocus, it's, it's been really confusing as far as how to think about this, because for the longest time, filmmaking and autofocus were like not in the same... <laughs> they didn't talk to each other, let's put it that way. They're not in the same room, or they... 
They were not part of the same conversation. And so with the autofocus improving on certain cameras, it's just amazing that we now think we need it. And I understand um, when you're filming yourself, it's a lot easier to do that when you're using autofocus. But let's put in a Panasonic uh, promo here. Who's talking about the Panasonic image app? I've used it, and I've used it on a, a couple of cameras, and you can focus with it. But who's talking about it? I, I just haven't heard it. I mean, I've heard all, all the jokes and complaints about Panasonic autofocus, and you have to essentially only use single shot if you want reliable autofocus and all that. But who's tried the app? This app, you can download it to any, well, fairly new Android phone and any iPhone. You can touch focus on the screen from, you know, a certain distance away as long as the wireless connection holds up. And you can focus. Now, there's a line in the sand here, too, between autofocus and vintage lenses. And, of course, you can't autofocus those vintage lenses. Now, enter the concept from Josh at Make Art Now using a LiDAR uh, system and focus pulling with infrared. There's a concept there, pretty interesting concept. But if I were to say, is this something that I would recommend to other people, I would split it up again into my three kit levels. The minimal kit, absolutely not. Entry level is not going to be doing LiDAR autofocus. The basic kit, which is the middle of the road or the intermediate level, no, I don't think they would be doing that either. That's when I'm just introducing using either a manual focus lens and focus pulling by hand or something like that. The advanced level, maybe. However, the cost of a LiDAR focusing system, that is where I think it puts it out of my sphere because it's really something that an expert is going to either buy and or use even if they're buying older lenses that aren't expensive with it. So, okay, so that's just really off the, you know, out of the spectrum of what I'm generally focusing on. But I'm all about, you know, you know, you know my concept, it's all about making filmmaking affordable. And a lot of that, most of what I talk about are lens sensor combinations. So those lenses are either going to be vintage because vintage being less expensive, or they're going to be newer lenses, yet not the high end. And we're going to make these look as good as possible by tweaking the settings for each combination. Now, have you heard my recent podcast? And I may or may not go down this road, but I just want to bring it up again. Have you heard the idea I brought up about doing this for audio? I'm still playing with the idea. I'm still trying to consider if it's worth the time. But just to last, to wrap this up in a summary, the idea is to get the most common recorders. So like the Zoom H1, the H1N, the, the belt clip Zoom, which is the F1 and the F2, uh, the belt clip Tascam model number eluding me, uh, but they have a white one and they have a black one. So, so that's made mostly for a uh, lapel or lavalier mic. And then on the microphone side, the most common, of course, the Rode VideoMic, the Rode VideoMic Pro. And then there's a lot of good uh, other brands that are uh, doing really well with the $1 to $2 to $300 microphones. And then 
the wireless transmitter receiver market. Oh, it's it's like a it's like a jungle out there. But I have a trick. I'm developing actually a trick to make even the cheapest wireless transmitter receiver combination still work. So wood tips in that audio category for maybe getting you close to good settings on each of these devices be valuable. Sort of a question. Maybe I'll put another, I mean, I put a, um, a poll out there. Maybe I'll do it again, even though this is a separate topic, but audio, sort of like LUTs for audio. Not just LUTs though. Remember, it's device-specific settings. Real quick thing, and we're done. For instance, the Zoom H1, I'm really familiar with that, uh, with a number of different uh, plug-in lavaliers, wired lavaliers. And for one of them, I always know that, yeah, it's set at 63. If it's clipped on a certain place of my shirt, it's going to be about 63 with my voice. And then if you're in a different uh, configuration, you know, like if you do a line in to the Zoom H1, you know, what that's going to be at, or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so, and then with the shotgun microphones, with the lavalier microphones, there's always different you know, this they say this mic's a little strong, this mic's not strong enough. What do we do with the gain? Where do we put the gain on the transmitter receiver system? Where do we put the gain on the recorder? And where do we put the gain on the camera? Everybody says put the gain on the camera all the way down, right? Because most people know the gain or the preamp on the camera, uh, the budget cameras that I'm talking about isn't going to be perfect. So try not to use it. That's the type of concept I'm thinking about developing just some general advice, uh, but not general, sorry, specific to the device configuration. What microphone, what audio recorder, probably what camera, and then a few different scenarios. You know, the distance will be the variable. So sounds like a strange idea, but I'm going to do this for myself. I mean, I just, I think I'm going to, I don't, I don't have any reason not to. This is this is actually the how how I started my lens sensor LUT library. I wanted to know what settings would work best for every one of my lenses. So when I switch lenses, I know I'm getting a good basic image that I can use. And that is why I made my website. And then I started thinking maybe I could sell these. And so these things are worth $2.99 each or something like that. I, I've had people tell me, no, these are worth $10 each, but that could change. So Anyway, check out my website, silverlightphotoco.com. If you want to look, look at the lens sensor settings, that's on the Let's page. And then check out my other podcast uh, that talks about can we make something like LUTs for audio. Anyway, have a great day, everyone. Thanks for listening again. you got sort of a variety of topics here, and it's going to be a little bit difficult to title this. But thank you again for spending your very valuable time, and I'm hoping to help um, budget filmmakers get going. So thank you again.